Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome everybody to the Health and Wellness Show. Today is August 14th, 2015. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet are Doug and Tiffany. Today we are missing Erica and Gabby. So we'll uh, we'll miss their company today, but we'll welcome them back when they have a chance to join us again. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about something that is very interesting and bizarre and uh, as yet not fully uh, explained in the world of science and medicine, which is Morgellons. Uh, Morgellons disease. There's a lot of interesting information that's come out about this, um, but there's still a lot that is not yet known. So we're going to kind of dive into that topic. And we would welcome uh, callers today, anybody who might have uh, experience with this uh, or uh, know someone who has suffered from this condition um, or just, you know, has uh, their own opinions or observations to offer. Um, Our guest call in line is 718-508-9499. So, um, and if you can't call, you can also uh, log on to Blog Talk Radio and participate in the chat room, uh, which is on the page for the show there. So let's get started. Uh, we're going to connect the dots a little bit with some items from the news over this last week. Um, Tiff, it looks like people are getting uh, text neck from using their phones <laughs> too much. Do you want to talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, this article was posted on SOT in early August. Uh, it was called Move Over Carpal Tunnel, Now There's Text Neck, written by Dr. Jim Goldman. And he said that he'd noticed in his practice that children came in first, they were playing like little Nintendo games, and they would be sitting almost in a fetal position. And then he noticed as time went by that kids would be coming in and they'd just be texting their thumbs off. But... um in the article, it says that tilting your head 15 degrees from neutral position adds 27 pounds of stress on the cervical spine and the muscles. And the more well, you tilt your head, the more the force and strain increases on your neck, which can lead to degeneration of the cervical spine and discs, which cause uh, neck pain, back pain, shoulder and wrist problems, jaw pain, headaches, and changes in posture. And he even talked about a study where uh, it showed that people that text a lot kind of hold their breath sometimes or change their breathing while they're texting, and that also increases stress and can put even more of a burden on the neck and the upper back muscles. And, of course, uh, there was a study, too, that said people who are more, people who text more are more sedentary and people spend almost three hours a day, half of which is composed of texting. They spend almost three hours a day on their cell phones. So I try not to text too much, just in general. It took me a long time to get a cell phone, and then when I got one, I would never buy the texting plan. But then texting plans started being free, and people started texting me. And then at first I would just call them, and then after a while there were just some people that <laughs> texted me, and I really just didn't feel like talking at the time, so I got sucked into the whole texting world, which I still don't <laughs> do that much, but I do 
I mean, I would like to not text at all. But do you guys ever notice that you change your breathing when you're texting? I haven't paid that much attention to it, but I will from now no. on. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm kind of like you. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm kind of like you, Tiff. I, I, I don't do a lot of texting. I do sometimes. I mean, I do actually find it kind of handy, you know, when you just have to yeah. tell somebody something pretty quick and you don't want to make a phone call or something or you're in a place where you can't. Um, you just sit, mm-hmm. like whip off a text message. It's pretty pretty easy to do. But uh, I don't do it that much. Like I see kids on their phones, and I actually am blown away at how fast they can whip off their texts. Like they, <laughs> how quickly their, their thumbs are moving and stuff like that. I'm, I'm wow, that's that's pretty crazy. Um, I'm a little bit slower <laughs> at these sorts of things. But no, I've never I've never actually noticed a uh, uh, change in breathing. That's something I'm gonna have to pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah. So, so moving on in this article, uh, the doctor said that in his practice, he noticed that there are more young people that have developed kyphosis, which is a hump in their thoracic spine area. Hmm. And severe kyphosis can limit the space in the chest, and it can cause decreased uh, heart and lung function. So hmm. not only do we have a nation of dumb dumbs <laughs> <laughs> who text all the time. They can't write with their hands or compose full sentences, but now they'll be hunchbacks too. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's funny. Yeah. You know, I notice even just a computer, like working on a computer a lot, you tend to get that kind of hunched posture where you're like kind of leaning over the screen. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's funny that these all these new technologies, amazing as they are, it's like we, we kind of haven't, you know, kept a, a, an ergonomic perspective in mind with these things. And, and it's really very, I mean, even, you can even see it in driving too. Like when somebody's driving in a car, they tend to have this really kind of terrible posture where they're hunched over the, the steering wheel. Um, it, it's, it's kind of something that isn't really uh, kept in mind with all these different technologies. I wonder if, if there's actual ways to, to get around it. I mean, you see um, uh, a lot of people who are going, moving to these kind of uh, walking desks and things like that mm-hmm. or standing desks where, you know, it, it kind of encourages you to have a normal kind of standing posture when you're not uh, um, sitting down in a chair. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, like all, all of these kinds of things are, are things that some people are starting to pay attention to. But uh, it'd be interesting to see if they can incorporate that into cell phone use in some way. Um, I, I don't know if the watch or the, the, the glasses, the Google Glass or something like that might might improve that sort of thing. Well, you could always text while you're lying down on your back. Yeah. <laughs> what if you're on the go in the office? <laughs> Lay down on the floor. <laughs> I actually use a, a standing desk um, because I work at, at a computer for a living, and um, mm. I've been doing that for a couple of years now. And um, I noticed quite a big difference. There was a period of time after I moved and hadn't set up the, the desk at the new location, so I was sitting down for a while again for a few months. And I noticed a huge difference just in my general um, posture and, you know, sense of um, flexibility and, and movement, stiffness in my neck and that kind of thing. But that was something that um, <clears throat> my chiropractor had brought up, not in regards to texting specifically, but more in regards to computer usage that they see a lot of this um, angled neck, um, mm. you know, and where, like Tiff, like you said, I think it was every inch that you angle your neck forward puts an extra 10 pounds of strain onto the spine. It's pretty dramatic. Yeah. Mm. So do you stand up the whole time? I also have a stool. I have like a tall stool. 
So if I get mm-hmm. tired of standing, then I'll sit on the stool. Um, but, and I try as much as possible not to be like hunched over over the keyboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it still happens from time to time. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not. Well, I'm Oh, go ahead, Doug. No, I was just gonna say it's very easy to forget. You know, you keep eating, suddenly you're yeah. like, oh, I, I have to, I have to stand up straight, and you do that, and then like kind of five minutes later, you're right back into that hunched position again because you got distracted by something. So, it's it, yeah. it, it's difficult to to keep in mind. Yeah, I'm hunched right now. I had to tell myself to straighten up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm paying particular attention to my posture right now. Make sure. Well, I speaking take a of. Uh, speaking of position, um, Tiff looks like that we have another article here on uh, sleeping positions. The best sleeping position for cleaning up the brain's metabolic waste. Yeah, that was written by uh, Jeremy Bean. What position do you guys sleep in first? Well, I switch around I a lot. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm usually either on my back or I'll switch from side to side as well. Mm. What about you, Jonathan? Yeah, same same here. Um, I, I usually start off on my side, and then I'll find that if I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm on my back. Um, mm-hmm. Honestly, I prefer sleeping on my stomach. I like that position, but that's just you know. Yeah, I don't I don't understand that position. I I can't understand how anybody can sleep on their Oh, you do, right? Yeah, it's very. I can't fall asleep unless I'm on my stomach with my arms tucked underneath me and my head tilted to the side on the pillow. And the blankets over the top of my head, but not huh. over my face, so I can get fresh air. <laughs> but then, in the middle of the night, I will turn from side to side. I tend to turn a lot. But mm. um, this position—I mean, this uh, article—says that sleeping on your side or in a lateral position helps to remove metabolic waste from your brain more efficiently. This study was done on mice, but they still have to test it on humans. But uh, simply put, the cerebral spinal fluid enters the brain, and it signals the removal of interstitial fluid, which is fluid that's in the spaces between the cells. So it stimulates that fluid and solutes and other debris to move them out through the lymphatic pathway, which is kind of the uh, lymph system of the brain. So uh, it says that this process of clearing waste out of your brain is most efficient at night. And I think it really highlights another reason why sleep is so important, and it offers an explanation, too, of why sleep deprivation leads to thought disturbances and hallucinations and sometimes psychosis because of the buildup of metabolic waste products. That really wasn't in the article, but I just thought of that. But it kind of makes sense. So yeah, we yeah, covered an are. article a couple of shows ago where we were talking about the lymphatic system and how the brain actually kind of shrinks down at night mm-hmm. while you're sleeping so that it, uh, that waste is more efficiently kind of uh, washed out of the brain. Yeah. So sleep on your side, folks. Yeah, <laughs> you that's pretty I do notice that if I sleep on my back, I get more nightmares. I don't know. I why that is. Maybe because my lymph isn't draining out as it should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's weird. The whole stomach position, though, I, I that that one, I'm always afraid I'm going to suffocate myself or something, so I never, never <laughs> do the, the stomach thing. 
I love it. Yeah, I did. Let's uh, yeah, let's I'm move on to our next. Oh, what's that, Tim? Go ahead. That was it. Okay. Um, let's our our next uh, connecting the dots topic here on how microbiota can protect against development of type one diabetes. There's some interesting topics there. Doug, do you want mm-hmm. to go to that? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, this was uh, uh, published in Science Daily on August 6th, and we uh, have it up on the Science Health and Wellness section. Um, and the other just talks about how microbiotic, uh, sorry, microbiota can uh, help uh, to protect us from certain diseases. And we've covered this quite a bit on past shows, how uh, the microbiome, like your, your bacterial balance in your gut, can uh, have a protective um, property, uh, depending on what kind of balance you have of bacteria in your gut. So um, this was uh, researchers from the French National Center for Scientific Research, um, and they had help from uh, teams in China and Sweden, uh, and they showed how the microbiota protects uh, against development of type 1 diabetes. Um, It was published in the journal Immunity on uh, August 4th. Um, So they talk about how uh, the immune system has developed various mechanisms to detect and defend against and even destroy microorganisms that are harmful to the body. Um, and this includes uh, what are called antimicrobial peptides, um, which are natural proteins that destroy pathogenic bacteria by di- uh, disrupting their cellular membrane. Um, and interestingly, they're not just produced in immune cells, they're also produced in other cells of the body. Uh, so the current research, they looked at a category of these uh, antimicrobial peptides called, uh, and I'll hopefully I'm pronouncing this properly, catholicidins. Um, and they serve a protective function uh, but they also exhibit immunoregulatory abilities. So, the, in other words, they're able to kind of balance the immune system in some way. Um, and since they have this kind of regulatory function, uh, scientists kind of hypothesized that maybe they had a role in autoimmune diseases. Um, that's where the body will mistakenly attack its own cells. And uh, they find that in autoimmune conditions, uh, the immune system tends to be overstimulated. So it starts um, attacking things that it shouldn't be attacking, namely like the body's own um, uh, cells. And uh, type 1 diabetes, they said, is uh, an autoimmune disease where uh, the body starts to attack the pancreas cells that produce insulin. Um, So first they observed that the uh, beta pancreatic cells in non-diseased mice produced these catholicidins. And that interestingly, uh, this production is impaired in diabetic mice. So uh, to test the hypothesis, they injected the diabetic mice with these catholicidins um, where the production was defective. Um, Quote from the author of the study here, uh, injecting catholicidins inhibits the development of pancreatic inflammation and as such suppresses the development of autoimmune disease in these mice. Um, So this is where the gut comes in because the the whole article is talking about how the gut can protect you. So given that uh, the production of catholicidins is controlled by short-chain fatty acids, um, these are produced by gut bacteria. So um, I don't know if anybody's familiar with this, but the gut has these bacteria that will um, kind of take these indigestible fibers, you know, stuff in our diet that we don't actually digest and just go straight through our digestive system. Well, the bacteria in the gut have the ability to break these things down, and as a byproduct, they produce these short-chain fatty acids, which we then absorb and use in our body. Um, so... The, uh, the research team was looking at the possibility that this may be the cause of uh, the catholicidin uh, deficiency, that uh, maybe these people are lacking the gut bacteria 
to be able to produce these little short-chain fatty acids and then produce the catholicidins. Um, and it says, indeed, researchers have observed that diabetic mice have a lower level of short-chain fatty acids than that in healthy mice. Um, so it says, in fact, transferring part of the gut bacteria from healthy mice to diabetic mice, they are reestablishing a normal level of catholicidin. Uh, meanwhile, the transfer of the microorganisms reduces the occurrence of diabetes. So just by taking bacteria from the healthy mice and implanting it in the gut of the unhealthy mice, they're actually able to see a turnaround in uh, this type 1 diabetes. Um, so for the authors, this research is, for, research is further evidence of the undeniable role of the microbiota plays in autoimmune diseases, particularly in controlling the development of autoimmune diabetes. So I thought that was very interesting. And like, yeah, like they said, it is just more evidence of how, how important the gut microbiota is. And it seems like they're discovering more and more how much of us is actually our microbiota and how, how important that really is. Yeah, very interesting. That uh, <clears throat> I seem to remember it was one of our past shows we had talked about the makeup of the body and it, something like the, the majority of, of cells in your body are microbiota. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, they they, they have like cells. Yeah, three or four pounds of us is just bacteria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Now this recurrent research didn't didn't look at humans. It was only looking at mice. So obviously there's more research that needs to uh, to go into it. But it's pretty telling nonetheless. Yeah. Well, it's uh. Let's go on to our, our last uh, Connecting the Dots article here. Um, Doug, if you want to tell us about this, it looks like modern diets are actually passing on immune, uh, poor immune functions genetically. Yeah, yeah. This one was called Modern Processed Diets Are Coding DNA and Gut Bacteria to Pass on Poor Immune Functions to Our Children. Um, it was written by Mei Chan um, on uh, the site preventdisease.com on August 6th. Um, so it, it's talking about how um, our modern processed diets are leading to poor immune function and increased of, of inflammatory conditions, um, including allergies, autoimmunity, um, etc. Uh, besides affecting immune functions and our own health, modern diets could also code our DNA and gut bacteria to pass on poor immune functions to our children. And so that that's that's stuff we've seen before, and we've talked about on the show how this modern processed diet. Um, actually affects the gut bacteria, not only by, you know, uh, killing off the good guys and, and allowing the bad guys to kind of thrive, but actually getting to the point where it's, it's coding their DNA and, in fact, coding our own DNA um, to turn off uh, certain um, ge uh, genetic switches um, to change us. So the consequences of a, of a processed diet are obviously a lot more than just, you know, you're going to get fat or you're going to, um, you know, not have proper energy or not be able to think straight. It's actually like, you know, changing our own DNA. Um, so a team of scientists from Yale University in the U.S. Um, and the University of Erlangen-Nuremberg in Germany uh, has said that junk food diets could be partly to blame for the sharp increase in autoimmune diseases, such as multiple sclerosis, alopecia, asthma, eczema. Um, you know, there's other ones as well, obviously, lots of, a whole host of different autoimmune conditions. Um, so the new stark warnings come out in a review published in the uh, Nutrition Journal, which analyzes the impact of the modern Western diet on immune function 
and risk of ill health related to poor immunity and inflammation. Um, so the research, as you can tell, is coming from uh, you know mainstream uh, view of things because they implicate things like saturated fat and salt. Um, and we've talked a lot on this show about the benefits of saturated fat and salt. So um, you know, I, I, I would kind of keep that keep that in mind when you're when you're reading this. But they also implicate sugar, uh, artificial sweeteners, gluten, uh, and GMOs. Uh, the author says that while today's modern diet may provide beneficial protection from micro and macronutrient deficiencies, our overabundance of calories and the macronutrients that compose our diet may all lead to increased inflammation, reduced control of infection, increased rates of cancer, and increased rates for allergic and autoimmune inflammatory diseases. Um, in summary, there is enough quality direct human evidence to conclude that many of the dietary choices in today's modern society appear to have harmful impacts on the immune system and likely on the immune system of our offspring. So that's an interesting point there too. That's not just that we're affecting our own uh, DNA and our own bodies, but this is something that can be passed on to our children as well. Um, he says that modern, modern solutions to the negative impacts of poor diet, including probiotics and dietary supplements, cannot do enough to counterbalance the damage done without additional lifestyle changes. And again, that's something that we've talked about quite a bit on this show, how um, you, know, you can't just take a bunch of supplements and assume that you're going to start correcting these problems. It really does take um, you know, lifestyle changes. You need to change your diet considerably. Uh, you know, it's not just the kind of thing where, well, I have to avoid cake and only do it on the weekends. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. a lot more um, extensive than that. Um, so each person kind of harbors a, a unique and varied collection of bacteria um, that's the result of a life history as well as their interactions with the environment, diet, and medication use. So, it, yeah, again, the microbiome is affected by all these different things. Um, of potentially greatest concern, the author says, our poor dietary behaviors are encoded in both our DNA scaffolding and gut microbiome, and thus these harmful immune modifications are passed to our offspring during their most critical development window. Um, yeah, uh, it, yeah. He also he also implicates a few other things like low um, excess omega sixes in the diet, uh, low omega threes. Um, he didn't mention it, but I'm sure trans fats has something to do with that as well. Um, some of the inflammatory compounds that you find in the diet, like uh, um, from nightshade vegetables or casein that you find in dairy, um, grains obviously, gluten and all the gluten-like uh, peptides that you find as well. Um, skyrocketing obesity rates also in, are an implication in um, inflammation. inflammation. Um, because uh, the adipocytes, which are the fat cells, release inflammatory substances. Uh, I won't read all the different ones off, but um, those ones all can kind of lead to greater inflammation as well and can also change the genome. Um, In animal models, it appears that these signals can act as false alarms that over enough time and in large enough amounts uh, cause the entire system to dial down its responsiveness, analogous to a person removing a battery from a twitchy smoke detector that is frequently alarmed uh, even when there's no sign of, of fire. Um, when actual infection comes along, the response may be delayed because the early warning system was silenced, just as deactivating that smoke detector leaves a home more susceptible to fire. So I thought that was a pretty good analogy. Yeah. So pretty interesting stuff. I think that's something that people very rarely take into consideration. Like they're, I mean, people get, women get pregnant by accident so often and they really mm-hmm. don't know that they really have to 
and improve their diets in order to pass on the best genetic potential. They think they just pass on the genes that they have, but they don't take into consideration the epigenetic factors or things that can turn your genes on and off and you can pass them to your kids. That's kind of sad. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, the, the usual, you know, when somebody's trying to get pregnant, usually what they do is kind of six months before they start say, taking a, a prenatal vitamin. They think, you know, that's yeah. that's good. That's what they need to do, and that's what their doctors suggest. But it takes years to actually, you know, change over and, and you know, change your diet and actually um, have these changes actually take place in yourself. And, I mean, the transformation, you'll see it in yourself, you know. It's not only just your weight, but, like, you know, how clear your thinking is and all these different things. So, you know, mm-hmm. taking a bunch of folic acid to prepare for pregnancy, really, it, it's not enough. You really you really need to be, um, if you want your baby to be as healthy as it can be, you need to be, you know, doing these things years in advance. Mm-hmm. And I think in the show we had with Dr. Rostenberg about the MTHFR uh, gene, uh, he said that folic acid even isn't good enough because it's not, Mm. Uh, the right type. It's not folate. That's right. Which is really good for preventing uh, neural tube defects and things like that. So even if mm-hmm. they are taking folic acid, it won't do anything. It might be doing more harm than good, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> that, that brings us to our uh, our topic for the day which is uh, the bizarre, um, little-known uh, disease called Morgellons. And uh, a lot of people, uh, I'm assuming that our, our listeners are somewhat aware of this. I think um, some portion of the population has at least heard about this, but I think there's still a lot of people that are not aware of it, um, evidenced by the, the fact that a lot of people who suffer from this are being called crazy by their doctors. Um it is a, uh, it's a, it's a very strange condition. It's, uh, it's been called a skin condition. It's been called a chronic infection, um, a bunch of different things. But basically, what it results in is uh, itching and pain, uh, fatigue, uh, mental deterioration, things like that, um, and these strange little colored fibers that kind of work their way out uh, through the skin, <clears throat> and then are eventually discovered. Uh, by the people who suffer from this uh, on the surface of their skin, and um, I don't know, it's it's pretty mind blowing. I've been reading some of the material uh, that we had uh, to prepare for this show, and it really seems like we still don't have a good idea as to what it is. There's been some studies that have been started, but it's it's hard to find um, results of these studies. Mm-hmm. I think the the first case occurred around 2001. There was a woman named Mary Lieto, and she had a young son, and he had this kind of rash area on his lip. And then she noticed that uh, these fibers were coming out of it, so she started looking things up. And she saw this 17th century medical study that came out of France about some children that were wasting away and sprouting Mm -hmm. harsh hairs from their backs. So Mm -hmm. that's when she decided to call it Morgellons. But um, from what I read about it, it sounds like something out of a horror movie. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie. Gosh, I can't remember what it's called now. Mm -hmm. But it was about a devil worship or something. This lady was looking in the mirror at her face, and she had this kind of big pimple. 
and she started scratching at it, and these <laughs> bugs started coming out. Oh, but, uh, it, it's really, really bad. Like that, really, really intense itching. Uh, people say that it's worse in the dark, so they turn their lights on at night. Uh, they can't sleep at night because of all the itching. Uh, they feel like something is crawling under their skin. They have these mm-hmm. crawling and biting, stinging sensations. And they have the skin lesions, and they open up, and there's fibers that come out. Uh, the fibers can be, like, black or red or blue or white or whatever color. Um, it causes them fatigue, mental confusion, short-term memory loss, joint pain, changes in vision. They have these hard nodules beneath their skin. One lady said that the fibers, her fibers that came out were extremely sharp and it kind of pierced through her fingernails. And the yeah. fibers could be long or a zigzaggy pattern. Uh, it makes yeah. my skin crawl just talking about it, but I can't imagine yeah. somebody going yeah. through this. Just from having read about it, I've, I've started increasing in the amount of itching that I've got. You know, I'm just like, what's going on? Why, why am I itching? But uh, yeah, it's really strange. Like the whole the whole thing about um, the bugs. You know, part of the problem with this. Um, well, there's a couple of different problems with it. You know, in order to kind of give it some sort of legitimacy, the fact that it does cause some mental um, traits, like some some symptoms that are are psychological, uh, makes it really easy to kind of dismiss these people as crazy. You know, because they're having these. You know, they might get very obsessive about things like cleanse, cleanliness and, uh, and and get kind of all all weird about stuff. So of course they go into their doctor and they're acting a little bit crazy. Um, it makes it very easy for the doctor to just dismiss it. And uh, you know, they're they're um, a lot of these people end up getting a diagnosis of delusional parasitosis, which is basically saying you believe that you you know it's just all mental. It's all in your head. You believe that you're kind of infested with these parasites. But uh, part of the problem, I think, also is that, you know, the, the, the sensation apparently does feel like bugs crawling underneath the skin, even though it might not be bugs at all. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there was one article that I read where they, they were speculating that um, people who have actually seen bugs, and they are, there are some people who have, who have kind of witnessed these, uh, these tiny little um, bugs kind of crawling on the skin, it might just be that the immune system for the skin is actually down um, and that might be from all the different things that they're trying. Like, you know, one woman apparently was bathing in bleach and uh, mm-hmm. all these other things where they're, that, that might be killing off the kind of natural microbial balance of your skin. Um, so you don't have the regular defenses that are there. So that might lead to kind of an infestation of these bugs. And then people are like, oh, well, it's the bugs. But um, in a lot of cases, there aren't actually any bugs seen at all. It's just, it's just, it's just sensation leads people to kind of believe that there's bugs there. And that's, uh, that, that I think maybe kind of confuses the issue um, and, and kind of what is actually going on here. Yeah, I think you know, not everybody reports having the bugs, but some of the reports that I've read, like people said that like gnats or flying insects like come out of their skin mm-hmm. or worms even. Jeez. But not everybody claims that, but the the biggest thing is the the skin problems, the intense itching and the crawling and the biting and stinging sensations and the fibers, of course. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, so um, people take these people fibers take to their doctors, and their doctor will just say that it's 
lint or uh, fibers from their clothes or cotton balls or dust mites or something like that, and they won't test them. But there have been some researchers that have started studying this disorder, and they've tested some of the fibers. And the really crazy thing about some of these fibers is that some of them autofluoresce under a certain light which is a very, very, very strange thing about Morgellons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but these fibers are really... Fibers. Go ahead, Doug. Well, I was just going to say the fibers, are, the, the whole thing about the fibers is very strange. Um, you know, there, there was a, a doctor who was studying it and kind of was looking into it, and he asked people to um, send him samples of these fibers. And, of course, all these fibers started kind of showing up in the mail, and he said, one thing he noticed was that they were all very similar. Um, but mm -hmm. on studying them, uh, he, he couldn't figure out what they actually were. You know, he, he took them to a, a police forensics lab to have them study it. And apparently they um, didn't match any of the 800 or so different uh, um, things they had on file. Um, further study of them have, have discovered that they're made of some sort of cellulose, which is bizarre in and of itself because the human body can't make cellulose. Um, and doesn't uh, yeah do, doesn't actually do um, anything that would cause cellulose to be coming out of the skin. So and they're, they're these little strands they're, they're tiny thread like um, apparently they're only a couple of millimeters. But uh, they studied one uh, skin sample from a girl and uh, found that it was embedded in the skin and there was no real way for her to have inserted it. So there's no real doubt. I mean there is doubt in in, in the mainstream medical community obviously, but uh, there's no real doubt for anybody who's kind of uh, objectively looking at the evidence that um, these things are being produced under the skin. And this might actually be what's causing the, uh, the, the sensation of bugs crawling around. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that same researcher also tested them against uh, some organic compounds in a database. There are over 90,000 organic compounds, and it didn't yeah. match any of those compounds in the database either. Yeah. Well, and there there was a, a one other study where they had found a, a researcher had found that they contained uh, agrobacterium, which is mm. uh, common, commonly used. Um, let's see here. Uh, let's see. According to the statement issued by Professor uh, Satovsky, this observation does not imply that agrobacterium causes Morgellons or that Morgellons is indeed an infectious disease, however, does encourage future studies to determine uh, what's the statistical significance of this and whether agrobacterium is not only present extracellularly, but also causes genetic transformation of the infected tissues. And this, mm -hmm. uh, this bacterium is used in, uh, in GMO crops. Um, so that yeah. was one of the, uh, they were drawing the link between more, the you know, this emergence of Morgellons and, and GMO food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the agrobacterium is used to insert foreign genes into plants. Mm. So you kind of wonder what its role is in Morgellons because um, I think this this researcher found that Morgellons patients tested positive for it. But like you said, Jonathan, it doesn't necessarily say that agrobacterium actually causes Morgellons disease. Yeah. So there, there's it's, been uh, that link. GMOs, and I'm sure that GMOs do uh, 
kind of break down the immune system and make people more susceptible to certain infections. So maybe that could be the reason why they found the agrobacterium in these people. But the thing that's weird about any of the studies or the lack of studies, I should say, is that no one ever got all of these people together and tried to kind of find what they all had in common because there's, I mean, there's the Northern California cluster. There's uh, cases in every country, I mean, every state in this country. I think Western Europe, uh, Australia, New Zealand, there's some too. So it's just really, really strange. There's a cluster around Houston, Texas as well, apparently. Yeah, it's kind of kind of interesting that it seems to, to cluster in these kind of uh, geographic areas. Um, makes me wonder if there's something kind of environmental that's that's going on there. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting it too to when like, we talk about the lack of uh, the lack of studies that are going on. You know, a lot a lot of this stuff was kind of uh, going on around uh, like 2008. There seemed to be a lot of interest in this, and even the CDC was kind of investigating things. But uh, I don't think they ever kind of came out. They, they were supposed to, they were talking about back in 2011 how they were going to be coming out with that kind of their definitive um, research or their definitive kind of statement about Bargellans and whether or not it was legitimate or if these people were all just crazy. Um, but as far as I can tell, they still haven't done that. They seem to be really stalling on this kind of thing. So if they're actually... Well, I, actually, Doug, um, oh. I was looking that up and I found something it was actually oh. published in 2012 on the uh, Plus One Journal. Um, the study hmm. itself took place between 2006 and 2008, and these were patients that were all part of the Kaiser Permanente uh, Medical Group in Northern California. Hmm. Um, so they had like 115 patients in this study, and most of the patients, 77% were white, 77% were women. Um, the median age was 52. Um, 70% of these uh, patients reported chronic fatigue, and they rated their health as fair to poor. They, was their health fair to poor before they came down with Morgellons, or was it they considered fair to poor during the time that they had it? Um, Another interesting thing that came out was that 78% reported activities that involved the use of solvents, like uh, turpentine or paint thinners or wood staining materials, um, or they reported that they lived with somebody who engaged in activities that involved solvents, but they didn't go any further and ask them what solvents they were or how long they used it or what their exposure was like. So the study really didn't come out with anything. Um, they gave them uh, cognitive tests because those people report like brain fog, confusion, and memory problems and things like that with Morgellons. But the study, in the study, they tested the, the fibers and they said that they were like nylon or cotton fibers. Mm. So the study really didn't shed any more light on Morgellons than anyone else did. Yeah. Does it cost 350 grand to say, yep, this is weird? <laughs> and I think it was even yeah. more than that, like half a million dollars. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting, though, that they haven't kind of done 
more on it. Um, and I think, you know, if, if there actually is a, 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 you know, a GMO connection, um, I think we can probably understand why there hasn't been a lot more looked into it. You know, if a couple of hundred thousand people have this issue, we can maybe brush it under the rug and ignore it. Um, you know, especially if it's going to shed light on something a little um, disturbing about the status quo. Yeah, there's very, very few studies, and I guess for a long number of years, the CDC, they just ignored it. And then finally, mm. they came out with a study that says nothing. Yeah, yeah. In one of the uh, one of the articles on SOT um, that was written by a person who suffers from Lorgellens, there's a, a photo here of a, uh, a headstone from a grave, and it says, "Here lies Mr. Common Sense, cause of death, waiting on CDC Morgellons report." Mm. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's got to be maddening for these people because the the uh, the wider range of, of symptoms that you read about are just awful. I mean, not you know, I've I've been through a case of hives myself, and the itching is awful just on its own. But these people are describing pain um, and a host of other symptoms. Uh, one person even said that they would have gladly cut off their their limb uh, to avoid the, the pain that was being caused by this. And yeah. I mean, that's that's extreme. You know, I I would not. I would not go anywhere near calling that person crazy. I mean, you know, if you're if you're suffering enough pain that you want to cut your arm off, then this needs to be checked out. You know, like that that should be taken seriously. And I think it's really shameful mm -hmm. that a lot of doctors are, are just writing this off. Yeah, I've read also that some Morgellon sufferers have committed suicide versus you know, living with this for the rest of their lives. Yeah. There was one woman who actually said she would rather have cancer. Because cancer, at least, is recognized and, and you know, not ridiculed. And, um, you know, it, it, it sounds really harsh to say, you know, I'd, I'd rather have cancer. But that's, that, that was her kind of perspective on it. Yeah. 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 There's also been ties to Lyme disease. Like, people who have Lyme disease will test, will, will get these fibers. I can't say that they test positive for Morgellons because it really isn't a test. But they'll come down with Morgellons, too. So there's a link with Lyme and Morgellons, and they start uh, antibi antibiotic protocol to treat their Lyme's and their Morgellons symptoms improve in some cases. Yeah, there was one particular uh, case where they had tested, uh, it said 43 out of 44 people who had Morgellons also had currently or had had Lyme's in the past. So, I mean, that's mm -hmm. a, that's a pretty big number. You know, that could be like you were talking about, it could be a regional phenomena. Um, because mm. Lyme only exists in a few part of the few parts of the country. Um, yeah. But you know, and more gallons is popping up all over the place. What this makes yeah. me think of all, all these different symptoms and all these different manifestations of, you know, what we've we've given this name, Morgellons, or it's kind of adopted this name. Um, to me, it seems like, uh, you know, the our Cavalier um, kind of attitude, you know, not not all of us collectively, but the uh, you know the the powers that be, the agriculture companies, the, the bio research companies, the food companies, that have been very careless about using um, processed ingredients, um, using chemicals, using plastics in their food, 
Um, and then, like with this agrobacterium, using uh, specific tools to go in and genetically alter food. I mean, we have no idea what that's going to do. And I think Morgellons is, is one kind of result of that, you know, coming home to roost where it's it's like you you mess around with the genome, you put it out into the population, hundreds and hundreds of millions of people, some weird stuff is going to start to happen. And I think that this is a, an, an evidence of that, you know, um, again, I, I don't have, uh, you know, any kind of a biological or medical degree. So, but it makes me wonder, you know, is, are these, are some of them maybe organisms that are actually adopting plastics into their biological structure? And that's why these mm-hmm. things turn out so strange. You know, is it a hybrid of like a fungus and some kind of a bacteria? Um, you know, what is this? Are we, have we created some sort of a new monstrous form of, of mutated life um, that's, you know, taking up uh, residence in people's bodies? It, it's it's hard to say because the symptoms are so widely varied. Some of them are fibers. Some of them are, like you said, Tiff, like weird-looking insects. Other ones describe like shards of glass. They're like very strange little mm-hmm. shards that are coming out of their skin. Or crystal structures that come out when they're in the bathtub. Yeah. 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 Or little black specks too. Some of them report having these little black specks show up. They'll wake up in the morning and their bed is kind of covered in these these little black specks. Yeah. Well, there's this uh, independent researcher. Uh, there's a video, a two-part video on YouTube called Revelations from a Man Who Helped Design Morgellons Disease. But I think the the title is kind of misrepresented. I think it should be Revelations from a Man Who Helped Define Morgellons Disease. This guy, his name is Clifford Cornicom. He's not a doctor or anything. He's just an independent researcher. And he had some interesting things to say because people have sent him samples in the mail. But he says that Morgellons is like the skin condition of Morgellons. That's only an outward manifestation. But if you studied more blood samples of people, you would see the same pathogens in people who don't have the outward symptoms of Morgellons. So I guess he's collected like um, people's swish uh, red wine in their mouths and spit it out. And he's found that these people have had fibers that come out, but they don't technically have Morgellons disease. And he's studied uh, blood samples and he's found pathogens in people's blood, um, which is not like uh, really new information. I mean, other researchers have found that people have pathogens in their blood because it's always been thought that blood is uh, is sterile. But some researchers are uh, saying that it's really not sterile if you have the right equipment and you can detect the things that are in the blood. Mm. So uh, this guy, Cornicom, um, he says that this disease is not just specific to a small group of people all over the world. And he says that there may be Morgellon sufferers or just canaries in the coal mine and not this condition of having pathogens. He couldn't really define what it is that he found. He could only just call them pathogens. But this condition is probably worldwide. And uh, he's, he said that there is like four forms of these fibers, and they're found in all major systems of the body, not just uh, on the skin, but they're found like in the joints and in the organs and uh, 
in the stool. Um, but he's found four types, and he said that there, the first one was something he called uh, an enclosing filament, like something that is wrapped around an internal fiber. And then secondly, he said that there was, within that uh, filament, there's a submicron network of filaments. And the third thing he found is that there's spherical or like kind of round structures or oblate structures within the uh, the fibers, um, and he found a bacteria which he called chlamydia pneumonia-like, but not necessarily chlamydia pneumonia. It just seemed like it, and it lived within those cells. And he hmm. said the last type was a hybrid form, which was a ribbon-like structure. So he hasn't received, like, any kind of help with his research, and no one has followed up on his research or really done anything to kind of further and he's just working on his own but um he thinks that people people's immune systems are already weakened and like say they have chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia and they have limes and morgellons is just a progression of the weakened immune system and it comes out really horribly in some people mm -hmm. that have all the skin effects of morgellons disease so if you guys want to look that up, um, it's on YouTube, Revelations of a Man Who Helped Design Morgellons Disease. And he also has a website called the Carnicom, Carnicom Institute. It's C-A-R-N-I-C-O-M. Um, so if you want to look it up, he does a lot of uh, studies. Um, a lot of it is over my head. Um, he does talk a lot about chemtrails, which I guess we can kind of talk about that because uh, I've read some anecdotal reports that people have reported coming down with Morgellons after they like touched some sort of sticky substance that came out of the sky or that was in their yard or fell in their car or something. Have you guys read anything about that? Not in detail, but I'm familiar with, with what you're talking about. Um, it's uh it's hard to say. I think, like you know, there <clears throat> with with a, with the lack of any actual like rigorous mm -hmm. studies on this topic, it's it's really hard to say anything definitive because you could have you know a confluence of environmental factors that brought some you know pollen or something weird out of the sky, and that happened at the same time that a community was suffering from a toxic exposure, which caused Mark Ellens. And you know, I, I'm I'm not a big fan of the idea of coincidence, but it does happen. There are coincidences. Um, mm -hmm. but there are also there are also connections between these things too. We just don't really have the full breadth of knowledge to make these definitive connections yet. Um, it's it's almost like like we were talking about all these different varied manifestations of the disease seem to be a result of all of the different negative manifestations of um, you know the corruption of our our modern food supply or medicine and the environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's easy, maybe, maybe easy is the wrong term, but um, when somebody is kind of suffering from these things and they're looking for answers, um, it's very easy to kind of get caught up in the general kind of infosphere of, of all this kind of conspiracy theory and <clears throat> stuff that doesn't really have a lot of 
um, you know, good uh, evidential backing for it. Um, you know, people will start reading about things like chemtrails and, uh, and you know, SOD, I think, has done a pretty good job of, uh, of I don't want to say debunking chemtrails, but offering like a much um, more logical perspective on what these things actually are and that it isn't this kind of worldwide conspiracy of, of planes being outfitted with, uh, with stuff that can spray the population. Um, it, it, it's, but it's very, you know, when you are looking for answers and you, and you kind of can't figure out what's going on, um, it really is kind of uh, easy to slip into this mind frame that it's, it's being done to you on purpose and that there's this kind of evil um, cabal who are, are looking to kind of um, spread disease among the populace and, and control the population and all this kind of thing. But uh, I, I think it's important to keep a kind of sober mindset on these sort of things and, and kind of try and look at it from a, a, a more uh, logical perspective. Yeah, that's well, true. Yeah, I think it's it's also a little bit easier to wrap your head around something that had been has been, has a definitive cause and was caused by mm-hmm. someone or by a group or you know if there's this shadowy group trying to infect the planet with a certain kind of disease, then at least somebody is doing it you know and it has this kind of origin. Um, but when you don't mm-hmm. know, uh, you know the alternative to that is. Uh, we have no idea or even uh, I think a little bit scarier than that is that it's just runaway train effect of, of all of the Mm. things that have been done to our planet and to the things that we're ingesting. Um, Mm. Then, then nobody's in control and it's just, it's out of control and we have no idea where it's going to head or how bad it's going to get. I think that's kind of the, the difference. Like you were, I don't want to go too far off topic, but we were talking about chemtrails for a second. You know, like the idea I think that Sot has put forward regarding what we see as chemtrails is a result of uh, increased uh, cometary dust accumulating in the atmosphere because we have many more cometary bodies coming in around the planet now. And that has been scientifically shown by a lot of different observatories um, that these near-Earth bodies are increasing. So that makes me think about the, uh, there's another article on SOT about Morgellons that talks about the, um, you know, the cometary connection to plagues. Uh, Mm -hmm. The idea that extraterrestrial bodies could bring very weird viruses or bacteria that we don't know that they don't exist out there, you know, like that um, there's there certainly is uh, forms of bacterial life on other planets um, that could be brought and deposited in the earth and what kind of effect that could have on humans we don't know. Now this is all mm-hmm. speculative. You know we don't have lab tests to show that this is what's going on. But um, as I think as long as you are being open about what is speculation and what is not, then then these things should be discussed and we should kind of talk about mm-hmm. what the alternatives are. Yeah. Yeah, when I've looked into this, I don't immediately dismiss someone who says that it's caused by chemtrails or spraying in the air. People use the term aerosols. Um, So considering that um, there are these uh, above-the-earth cometary explosions, they don't necessarily have to hit the earth to explode, and there could be this these viruses or bacteria or something that is floating down in the atmosphere and is affecting people in certain ways. Maybe it causes Morgellons, maybe it doesn't, maybe it um, 
weakens people's immune system and makes them susceptible to certain infections. But I think that's a, a legitimate line of research mm-hmm. because uh, many of the researchers that have looked into Morgellons have said that none of these things can be identified. None of them are natural to the human human body or natural to the environment. So if it doesn't come from Earth or is not here naturally, where does it come from? Yeah. But you can also see how this would lead to, um, you know, it it being so, like, easy for the mainstream to kind of dismiss it, right? You know, Mm -hmm. these these ideas are, are kind of so far outside of the mainstream that you know that like a like a disease coming from outer space are you kidding me and it's like it, it, it makes it really easy to just kind of uh, look at these people as crazy and just kind of say not, these people are clearly you know suffering from some kind of mental issue and you know dismiss all the symptoms dismiss um, all the evidence that they're reporting um, there was one article actually that was published on SOT by a guy um, who actually was was looking into it, and he had a fairly dismissive attitude of the whole thing. Um, you know, I, I think he tried to remain objective, but was kind of uh, you know swinging it to the side that that these people are just crazy. And he went to a uh, a conference. There's a there's an annual conference held somewhere in the U.S. Um, and you know he was reporting that you know people are freaking out at the hotel and saying, oh my room's not clean, and like really kind of losing it um, about these things. And and you know he talked to the the, the hotel desk attendant and kind of said, are you getting a lot of these kinds of reports? And he says, yeah, I think it, I think it's kind of uh, uh, part of their condition. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it just kind of like really easy to, to, to just dismiss it all as, as crazy talk. Um, you know, I, I, I can't really see the, uh, like a mainstream doctor who's used, you know, he sees a disease, he knows what it is, and he makes a prescription to suddenly be confronted with something that is so bizarre. And, you know, it, it's much easier for him to go, okay, well, here's some psychiatric medication. Uh, maybe maybe this will help your condition. So, it, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I really do feel for these people because they're clearly suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to that point about it being kind of considered crazy, the, uh, the, the idea of any kind of disease or virus uh, coming from outer space or from a, comment, from a commentary body, um, there's an article about Morgellons here on, on SOT where the, the author draws these connections and he says, if, if you'll allow me a, a minute to read this here, he says, if the connection between diseases brought upon humans from extraterrestrial bodies seems a little bit out there, quote unquote, consider what the Carnegie Institute of Science recently published on the matter from the article Meteorites Toolkits for Creating Life on Earth. Uh, meteorites hold a record of the the chemicals that existed in the early solar system and that may have been a crucial source of the organic compounds that give rise to life on Earth. Since the 1960s, scientists have been trying to find proof that nucleobases, the building blocks of our genetic material, came to Earth on meteorites. New research published next week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences indicates that certain nucleobases do reach the Earth from extraterrestrial sources, by way of certain meteorites and in greater diversity and quantity than previously thought. Mm. Um, so, I mean, mm. and that's a, you know, if you want to go with the idea of we've talked in the past about credibility and, you know, uh, mainstream scientific studies, that's from the Carnegie Institute of Science. Um, and so they, it's not like the idea is so uh, out there as to be completely disbelievable. This is something that people are, are speculating and wondering about and have shown 
that these biological materials actually do come down from extraterrestrial sources. Um, mm. So, like, like, and like Doug, like you said, it's so very easy to say, like, you guys are all crazy and you're just talking about, you know, like aliens seeding the planet with, you know, diseases. Mm. And it's like the, uh, the Greek guy with the crazy hair from the History Channel show. Like, I'm not saying it was aliens, <laughs> but it was aliens. <laughs> but don't you know, when they go up into space up astronauts when they go into space don't they take precautions against uh them bringing back any kind of i don't know pathogens or infections with them aren't they supposed to be in quarantine for a while when they come back to earth mm -hmm. so it's not really out there that people can catch bugs from space yeah but expecting a mainstream doctor to kind of connect those dots it might be a bit of a stretch. <laughs> yes, I agree. Well, I think... Uh, yeah, but, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Tim. Yeah, but they're so quick to label these people as delusional. I mean, it's the same thing they do when people claim to be abducted by aliens, really. Yeah. 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 And it's 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 and it's funny to see other diseases that have now kind of taken um you know, have been more legitimized. Um, they went th through the same kind of thing, like the whole chronic fatigue syndrome thing, um, fibromyalgia. It, it took a long time for mainstream medical practitioners to actually recognize this as something more than like a a, a cognitive issue. Um it was the same thing with Lyme's, you know. Uh people people were were showing up with these symptoms and their doctors were like, Yeah, no, I think you're just crazy. So I, it, it's so endemic to first assume that the person's nuts, you know, instead of instead of kind of looking more into it. And I guess you can't really expect a you know a, um, a, a mainstream family doctor to kind of start doing more investigative research on this sort of thing. But uh, but you know it, it would be nice if there were channels where people who are suffering from these strange symptoms could go um, and kind of say, hey, look, I'm not crazy. I'm having these symptoms. And you know just by the online community. Um, for Morgellons, so many people are suffering with these symptoms, calling, being cr called crazy by their doctors, and it's not until they find this community where they're like, oh my God, these people are suffering from the exact same thing that I am. And, it, it you know, there's such a, um, you know, it, it must be so relieving to actually find out that, no, wait a minute, here's some evidence I'm not crazy. Um, this is this mm -hmm. is a real thing. Yeah. That, uh, to that Oh, I was just going to say to that point uh, from that article on site, this says that there are two major organizations for anybody who's listening who might be suffering from this or know somebody who is, um, the Morgellons Research Foundation and the Charles E. Holman Foundation. It's H-O-L-M-A-N. Um, <clears throat> those are two groups that you can uh, that you can look up to find, you know, solidarity uh, with other people as well as to find out more information about the, the disease. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Joni Mitchell well, uh, reportedly Mitchell. has as more gallons. Um, she had polio as a child, and she said that uh, it was really, really, really bad for her. There was times where she was like crawling on the floor because her joint mm -hmm. pain was so bad, and she said that her more gallons seemed to hit her in all of the places where she had polio as a child. And she mm -hmm. also said that it was so bad at times that she just couldn't bear to wear clothes. And I think there was another famous person. He played for the Oakland A's. Or, 
I think it was, and uh, he and his family came down with it, and he had to quit playing baseball because of more gallons. I can't remember what his name was, though. Yeah. Was it Billy Coach or Koch? I can't recall. Yeah, I think I think that's his name. Billy yeah. K-O-C-H. Yeah, his whole family came down with it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've read that. Sometimes it's just within family groups, and sometimes, you know, just single people have it, but people often wonder if they're contagious or if they can spread it to people, so they kind of, like, barricade themselves into their house. They have to stop working because it's so debilitating. But I wonder if there is a contagious element to it, or is it just because people just share the same habits and the same genetics when they're in a family group that they might be more susceptible to gallons? Or got the same exposure from something external? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the you know again with the different types of morgellons that are manifesting, there may even be cases where some are contagious and other ones are not. Mm. Um, you know, we're, we're not really certain about that yet. That's what kind of makes it so hard to talk about. Um, yeah, and I, yeah, I think there's some the, confusion. Like if people oh, who um, take certain street drugs, they might have similar symptoms, like people who take meth, for example, um, might have these skin eruptions and things and think that it's Morgellons when it may not be. So a lot of people who are really suffering from Morgellons, their doctors accuse them of being drug addicts. Mm. Mm-hmm. Boy, a lot of doctors are really a-holes, aren't they? Not trying to paint them with a broad brush here, but their track record is not very good for being nice people. Yeah, there's this doctor named Jeffrey Messer, who's the associate professor of dermatology at the University of Texas in San Antonio, and he actually gives presentations debunking Morgellon. He thinks is totally delusional disorder and has no real basis in reality. I feel like so that's so. Yeah, that seems so short-sighted to me, especially when people are coming into their office with these demonstrable symptoms. You know, mm-hmm. showing what's going on, explaining pain. You know, in any other case, if you got into a car accident and you know broke your leg, and they say, "Where are you on the pain scale?" and you say five or six, they believe you. In any other case yeah. where you're not challenging what's going on, they ask you where you're at on the pain scale, and then they take you at your word for what you say, uh, except mm-hmm. for this. You know, if, if somebody says, I'm itching and I'm in pain, they're like, yeah, you're nuts, you know. Yeah. Like, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> That's not yeah, and how many other medical studies, like this Kaiser Permanente study that they did, where they gave them psychiatric evaluations, how many other medical studies that you go in for, like, heart disease or blood pressure or anything that you might participate in, did they give you a psychiatric evalu- evaluation along with it? Yeah. yeah. That, no, it makes that me wonder who payroll. Uh, I was going to say, it makes me wonder whose payroll that doctor who's doing the debunking is on. You know, mm-hmm. I wonder if you follow the money trail, what kind of yeah. uh, interesting information you'd find. <laughs> yeah. Well, that uh, 
that kind of brings me to a point I was thinking about it, about like let's speculate and, you know while we're talking about the idea of speculation and this is speculation we don't really know but uh, it's very curious I think um, that while there is you know research into all these other different um, diseases that exist in the world diabetes cancer things like that that Morgellons is being kind of shunted off to the side what could be some possible explanations for that? And like Tip, you had mentioned earlier that, you know, what if it leads back to GMOs? And so mm-hmm. maybe there's some people that that have that knowledge and say, you know, we need to keep this under wraps because if they get too far into it, it'll come back. Just like Kaiser Permanente doing this study and then coming out and saying, oh, we don't know. You know, <laughs> you know like it, it does seem like something, either something fishy is going on here and it's it's mm-hmm. being suppressed for a specific reason, or I think um, the establishment has has just gotten so lazy that they that they don't do that kind of research anymore. I don't know. I think maybe either one is possible. Yeah. Well, the, the whole GMO connection, and then the people who say it's caused by chemtrails, and some people will say it's a a bio bioterrorist weapon that was developed. Um, which kind of ties into the chemtrails, and then there's the uh, plague from space kind of uh, theory. So it's all muddled up. You can't really make heads or tails of what is going on. I tend to be a fan of the plague from space theory. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, that's just me. Yeah. So what about yeah, treatment? What about, like, have you guys read what people have done to kind of make themselves feel better? Because there are some people who said that they have been cured from Morgellons or their symptoms have dissipated quite a bit where they're able to function at least. Mm-hmm. So what have you guys read about, guys read about what people have tried? Because a lot of people, because they're being labeled as delusional, they kind of drop out of the mainstream medical system and they start treating themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, apparently some people have had. uh... Sorry, go ahead, Jonathan. Oh, um, we might have been saying the same thing. It just uh, seems like antibiotic protocols work for some people, um, Mm -hmm. but that it has that it has to be in conjunction with an an optimal state of health. um, So that there needs to be work to kind of bring the body to a certain state of resilience, and then slowly get into an antibiotic protocol, which needs to be monitored by somebody who knows what they're doing. I can I can personally attest to the fact that you do not want to take a bunch of antibiotics and antifungals without knowing what you're doing. It turns out bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was going to say uh, the same thing, Jonathan. I think that, that some people, it, it's like you were mentioning before, Tiff, that some people who have Lyme's and then come down with Morgellons, um, mm-hmm. Which may just be because their 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 immunity is so compromised. Um, by treating the limes with their antibiotic protocols, they've they've had improvements in their Morgellons symptoms as well. So it it makes me think that uh, you know there probably is some sort of microbial connection to it. So uh, taking steps to um, you know take uh, get get rid of um, pathogens is probably a good a good approach. I mean, I've, I've read things I mentioned before about there's a woman who, who uh, bathes in bleach. Um, there's other people who have uh, done stuff with diatomaceous earth, kind of sprinkling that all over their bed and things like that. Um, you know, those are kind of external ways of attempting to kind of get at these pathogens. But I think it, it, it probably 
requires that you do something more systemic, um, that you mm-hmm. do kind of get in and try and, and, and uh, treat these pathogens internally. And of course, steps need to be made to kind of strengthen your own uh, body and your own innate immunity. Um, so getting yourself on a good diet, I mean, it comes back to that so often, um, avoiding kind of a, a processed diet, uh, avoiding a genetically modified foods, ideally getting yourself into a state of ketosis because that's uh, a way of kind of naturally boosting your immune system and um, getting your body into a mode where it will uh, kind of break down all this foreign material that's in, in your body. Um, but then, yeah, you know, uh, taking probiotics in conjunction with the, the antibiotics is important too because we've emphasized so often the, the necessity of having a healthy um, microbiome um, that will provide a defense as well. So there, there's lots of steps that can be taken. You really have to kind of connect some dots and, uh, and, uh, and do some research on it because uh, it, it can be very confusing for someone out there who doesn't have this kind of information to kind of get to the bottom of it and see that it's not as simple as like finding the cure. You know, there's one, yeah. one thing that you have to do. There's one pill that you have to take that's going to kind of alleviate everything. It's more of like a complete and total change of your lifestyle um, and even like a change in your attitude and, and um, you know, outlook on life. Uh, these things all kind of come in conjunction whenever you're dealing with these kinds of uh, invaders. Yeah. And people who have Morgellons, I mean, there's a lot of desperation with them, so they'll be willing to mm-hmm. try anything like taking a bath in bleach. But um, there's a lot of, uh, uh, I wouldn't say chat rooms, but like if you go to like earthclinic.com, there's a lot of uh, chat about Morgellons and what people have tried. People have tried um, taking baths in Epsom salt uh, to kind of mm-hmm. like alkalize their system because these pathogens can thrive in a in an acidic environment. People have uh tried bathing in twenty mutine borax or diatomaceous earth or tried neem oil, uh all kinds of creams or uh essential oils to rub on the skin and they've gotten some relief but not really what anybody would call a cure. So mm-hmm. I think it's important to not be so desperate that you do something crazy, but mm-hmm. you really, really work on your diet. There's been some talk about how these pathogens thrive on sugar and you should mm-hmm. not, you know, be eating a lot of processed food. So they, I haven't heard any mention really of ketogenic diet or paleo diet or little carb mm-hmm. or anything like that. It's just that, you know, you need mm-hmm. to stop eating sugar. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I think there's some really basic things. There, you know, um, been talking with people in the past about the diet that that you can you can start by cutting out gluten, and that that is like mm-hmm. kind of phase one, you know, and mm-hmm. that it, it's not it's not even good for you to try to do this uh, whole hog kind of like I'm going to change into a perfect dietary structure overnight because you can really shock your body into reacting violently. Um, mm. so it needs to be, it needs to be taken in steps. And I, for me, in my own experience, that first step was, was getting off gluten. I was at the time still eating carbs and sugar and other things, but it was just, just getting off gluten alone at the beginning kind of made it easier, um, to transition mm-hmm. to the other phases of that. Um, 
<clears throat> and it made me think of, I was looking at this article here on, that's on shot by, written by a person who does suffer from more guns, um, uh, uh, seems to indicate that they had uh, spent many years eating kind of plastic fats, eating, you know, hydrogenated oils, um, and that, mm-hmm. that may have made them susceptible to this condition. So coupled with a genetic predisposition, um, and, you know, a processed food diet that may have uh, created some susceptibility. But they did say at the end of the article here that uh, step one is to optimize the body physically and psychologically. Um, the mm-hmm. means, uh, means of applying antibiotics when one isn't in shape uh, to make the best use of it may not work. Um, so you need to be uh, physically healthy before just getting into any antibiotic or antiparasitic protocol and be psychologically healthy. So this means if you have, you know, issues of uh, anger or denial or rejecting, you know, rejection to uh, other people in your circle or, you know, any kind of like persistent psychological issues uh, that you might have need to be addressed, you know, and that might, that might mean mm-hmm. seeing a psychologist. It might simply mean you taking some time to, um, you know, read some, some material, um, we talk on the SOT forum quite a bit about the big five books on psychology. Um, you know, mm-hmm. those kind of things can help a person kind of gain a perspective on their state of mind and get better control over their kind of day-to-day uh, state of mind just simply by reading and studying about it. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that's another important thing is that, <clears throat> say, for instance, somebody who is just really, really angry and fuming all the time, can do all of these protocols to get their physical health in order, but if they don't address the mental issues, then I think that, you know, that problem is going to persist because mm-hmm. the body is the balance of the of the physical and the psychological. Um, sure. So, sure. but that, the person also then said at the, at the very end of the article here that, like Tiff, like you had mentioned, that using um, hot bath and Epsom salts and that uh, uh, enzyme baths um, can also uh, relieve the... Uh, the stress and the itching and the pain uh, from their gallons, you know, they're not like a total cure, but that that can provide some temporary relief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We should probably mention the probably mention the Eru Eru Olus breathing and meditation program that we promote on site. Um, and when it comes to kind of getting getting a handle on emotional issues on that. Uh, psychological issues, that sort of thing. Um, it can be Certainly. extremely helpful um, to, to to do this breathing program, to get a handle on stress. And, um, you know, when you're suffering from something like this that is so extreme and you're having such, uh, um, you know, strong symptoms, it, it, it can drive you crazy. It can, it can make, actually um, make you somewhat imbalanced. So getting a handle on that is certainly going to be a challenge. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, but, but, you know, these, these emotional states do have, um, a physical effects on the body. So if your, uh, mental environment is cluttered and, and, um, and full of all kinds of negativity, then your, your physical environment is going to be as well. So yeah, I think, I think getting a, a handle on that is certainly important, um, yeah. important part of, of dealing with it. Yeah, so improving your diet, decreasing your stress through meditation. Uh, Epsom salt baths might not cure it, but it might give you enough relief where you can at least think straight. 
Um, anything mm-hmm. that will boost your immune system, like the, the ketogenic diet or vitamin C or super uh, antioxidants like glutathione. I've read a little bit about that, how that can be helpful in a lot of conditions. Mm-hmm. And also uh, certain pathogens have an affinity for iron. So if you're taking iron supplements, you need to be careful and you need to make sure that the iron levels in your body aren't too high. I mean, that can easily be tested and remedied with uh, donating blood. So there are things that you can try to kind of boost your physical immune system so you're not as susceptible to any disease, not just Morgellons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and your the mention of iron there makes me think about, you know, um, the connection between uh, vitamin C uh, usage for people with hemochromatosis. Um, yeah. That that is that the, you know if you have hemochromatosis, you need to be very careful about how much vitamin C you use. So this is something I feel like we should say. You know that <clears throat> we've said in on past shows as well that we are not your doctor. We're not trying to give you medical advice. Um, we're here kind of just talking about this topic. And if you are seeking specific medical advice, you should go talk to whoever your practitioner is and ask them these questions. But you should also be very, very careful with what you do with your own body, Um, even and especially Mm -hmm. with things that are called natural, you know, like vitamin C, like glutathione, like vitamin D, things like these, you know, you you can get them at your local kind of co-op or, you know, health food store, but that doesn't mean that they can just be taken willy-nilly in combination with other things. Like you need to be really careful about what you're doing and um, Mm -hmm. talk to people who have experience and who know what the the interactions are, you know and what the counterindications are between different treatment protocols. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just like hammering yourself with antibiotics, antifungals, antiparasitics. I'm just going to kill everything in my body. Like you might end up killing yourself doing that. So it mm-hmm. requires caution. Yep. Um, so, yeah, just to remind everybody to do their own research um, and be very cautious uh, and always be uh be vigilant, you know, about misinformation. And if you're not sure about something, look it up. And if you still can't find it, go to somebody who's an expert and ask them, you know, and just keep hammering and then doing your best to find out uh, what the truth is. So, mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's uh, let's take a little break here and go to uh, Zoya for the pet health segment. Uh, she's going to talk to us today about chocolate, chocolate and pets. Um and this is an oft-discussed uh, <clears throat> topic among uh, dog owners especially, but we'll get a little bit of enlightenment here from Zoya, and then we'll, we will be back uh, after this. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today I'm going to share with you a very informative and interesting recording made by Megan Brashear from On the Floor at Dove. It's a site that has a purpose of providing veterinary professionals with good quality information they may need for their work. So this particular talk is about chocolate toxicity in pets. And even if the recording is intended for veterinarians and vet technicians, undoubtedly uh, pet owners may benefit from it as well. I hope you'll find it useful. Enjoy! 
Hi, I'm Megan. Today we're going to talk about chocolate toxicity. Now, it's currently Halloween, but after Halloween comes Christmas and Valentine's Day, then Easter. There are a lot of chocolate holidays. There are a lot of reasons that there's chocolate around all the time because it's delicious. And our dogs are going to get into it. We're going to see chocolate toxicities year-round. Now, the methylxanthines are the kind of toxic proponent of chocolate, and they include caffeine and theobromine, and chocolate contains both of those. Chocolate is actually toxic to cats as well. Uh, We don't see as many cats who are interested in getting into chocolate, but there are certainly those out there that will eat what's in front of them. So if an owner calls and does have a cat that's gotten into a bunch of chocolate, it's worth noting that they can show the same signs of toxicities that dogs can. Now, as with any toxin, it's dose-dependent. The methylxanthines, the toxic proponent of chocolate, there's going to be less of those in milk chocolate than there is in dark chocolate. And obviously, baking chocolate is the most dense and is going to have the, the biggest, going to pose the biggest problem to our patients. So the signs are going to vary depending on the type of chocolate, the size of dog, and how much they ate. A Great Dane that eats two Hershey's Kisses, probably not going to be a big deal, but that three-pound chihuahua that gets into Hershey's Kisses, we may have, have an issue with that dog. So as you can see here, uh, the signs of toxicity are going to occur at about 100 milligrams per kilogram of ingested um, methylxanthine. So um, you're going to have to figure out what type of chocolate it was, the weight of the dog, and then kind of put all that together. Milk chocolate contains about 60 milligrams per ounce. Dark chocolate is about twice that much at 150 milligrams per ounce. And then we go way up with a baking chocolate at around 450 milligrams per ounce. So when the owners call and there's an issue, make sure that you ask them if they know how much the animal ate and definitely what type of chocolate it is. The Internet has a variety of chocolate calculators out there that you can put the weight of the dog, the type of chocolate, and how much they ate. And it will tell you if you can expect a mild, moderate, or severe reaction. Just make sure that if you're finding those calculators that you're looking on veterinary Approved websites, and it's not just some Yahoo out in the country who's making up this chocolate calculator for you. So we'll tend to see signs in these patients about one to four hours post-ingestion. That's not a hard and fast rule, um, but that's about the time that you're going to start to look for problems. Uh, first, we'll see GI distress in these more mild reactions. These animals are going to be vomiting and probably have diarrhea. And a lot of that is just a result of everything else that goes into those treats that have chocolate in them. If your dog is eating brownies or cookies or cake, there's a lot of flour and butter and sugar, and that's all going to go in to cause GI distress. Some of these patients, we can see a problem with pancreatitis. So we may be able to get them through the chocolate part of it, but then we've got this prolonged kind of GI disease that we're dealing with. Uh, What really gets concerning about these guys is that the methylxanthines actually increase the calcium content inside the cell, and it increases cell excitability. So we start to see these muscle tremors, and we can actually start to see uh, cardiac arrhythmias because of the chocolate that the animal has eaten. So this is a classic presentation of uh, kind of a mild reaction. Uh, You may think, well, this is just a cute little dog, and it looks like it really wants to get out of the kennel and be held. But this dog was behaving this way at home, really restless, panting, unable to lie down, um, just moving around all the time, seemed really excitable. This little dog had gotten into chocolate earlier in the day, um, and these are the kind of mild signs that we're going to see. Uh, If you look at the back legs of some of these patients, you'll be able to see that they're trembling a little bit. Um, Those tremors can progress to seizures, which can progress to coma and death. So we definitely don't want to look at this and say, oh, that's a mild reaction. It's not that big a deal.
Uh, when we start to see uh, more of a moderate to severe reaction, we'll see tachycardia. So the heart muscle just gets really excited. We start to see this increase in heart rate. Uh, so this particular ECG shows a sinus tachycardia. So the ECG waves are normal. We have a normal rhythm. We just have a really high rate. Uh, some of these patients can get up into a heart rate of 200, 220, 240. Uh, so it's important to have owners check the heart rate at home. And if they're noticing it a little bit high at home, definitely time to get them in and have them seen. We can start decontamination and treat them for their chocolate toxicity. This, as we're getting into a much more severe reaction, is called ventricular tachycardia. So this patient, we're seeing the arrhythmias. We're seeing VPCs all strung together at extremely high heart rates. Um, This is definitely worth hospitalizing and monitoring this patient. And this is the danger that we see with these higher doses of chocolate in these patients. So when they come in, first step is decontamination. Uh, The sweet spot of inducing vomiting in these patients is to do it within about one to two hours of ingestion if possible. Um, What I have learned about chocolate is that it kind of sits in the stomach for a long time. It can kind of form a little ball in there. So even if it's been multiple hours since the animal has ingested chocolate, it's worth inducing vomiting just to see if you can get some of that up. Uh, And a lot of patients like this one here will see a lot of wrappers in there because they tend to just inhale everything. If the animal is, you know, seizuring, doing very poorly, ingested a very, very large amount of chocolate, it may be worth performing gastric lavage. Um, It's safer for that patient for them to be anesthetized, protect their airway, and perform gastric lavage to get that chocolate out of their stomach. If it's been a prolonged period of time and you have a patient that's been hospitalized and their heart rate is still high, you're still seeing arrhythmias, it's worth doing an enema to try and clear out as much as you can from the intestinal tract. So as technicians, monitoring our um, chocolate toxicity patients or really any toxicity patients, if they're not improving the way we think they should be, think about an enema so that we can get as much of that out as possible. The next step after decontamination is to give some activated charcoal. The really small, porous uh, molecules in that charcoal, their, their goal is to just absorb toxins from the GI tract and kind of help them pass out without the animal absorbing them. You're going to start with a dose. Most of the first doses of charcoal are going to contain a cathartic like sorbitol. Um, that's going to kind of help push everything through the system. Depending on how the animal is doing, how much chocolate they ingested, they may need to repeat that dose of charcoal every four to six hours for three to four doses. Most of the patients, you decontaminate, give one dose of charcoal, they go home and do fine. But in the hospital, you may need to repeat that. The treatment for chocolate toxicity, if they do need to stay in the hospital, is really symptomatic. So if they have a really high heart rate, um, if they're having GI signs, treat them for that. If they're having seizures, treat that with Valium. Um, beta blockers are really common to treat the cardiac. So if they have really, you know, extremely high tachycardia, propranolol is one of the most common ones. Give it slowly. Watch the ECG. Make sure that you're seeing that heart rate drop slowly and not all of the sudden. IV fluids are really important for diuresis, for, um, you know, cardiac output support, for blood pressure support. Um, some of these guys can have a really high blood pressure as well. So um, just make sure that we're monitoring all of their vitals. Providing some GI support, uh, depending on how they're doing with that. Monitor them for pancreatitis, abdominal pain, that type of thing. And then the uh, methylxanthines are actually absorbed, reabsorbed through the bladder wall. 
So um, some very severely chocolate toxicity patients made it a urinary catheter place so that we can keep their bladder empty and they stop reabsorbing that. This is important to know if you're sending an animal home after ingesting chocolate to tell the owners to walk them frequently so that their bladder stays empty. A patient in your hospital that doesn't have a urinary catheter, maybe you walk them every two hours so that they're not just continuing to reabsorb those toxins. The methylxanthines do have a long half-life, so they may be up to 72 hours that the patient is going to be experiencing these signs from the toxicity, so they may need to stay in the hospital for a while. You treat them until they're asymptomatic. Treat them until their heart rate returns to normal, until their blood pressure is normal, until their mentation is normal. Um, Support their GI signs. Some of these guys may be in the hospital longer just because of the vomiting and diarrhea. So once they're all better, a lot of these patients return home to a completely normal life. And those are the basics on chocolate toxicity. All right. Thank you very much for that, Zoya. <clears throat> so really good reminders there, especially the one about how if your animal is presenting what could be considered mild symptoms, not to just let that go like it needs to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, that's our uh, that's our show for today. We, we don't have a recipe today, but next week we are going to get into a bit of uh, a little more uh, – a little longer discussion at the end instead of just doing like a one-off recipe we'll spend a little time talking about pork rinds and what can be done with pork rinds we've given a few pork rind recipes in the past um but i think next week we'll we'll spend a little bit of time talking about that and talking about prep and what you can do uh with pork rind so um that's our show for today we'd like to say thank you to everybody who's listened and to our chatters um, and be sure to tune in to the other two shows on the SOT Radio Network, uh, The Truth Perspective, tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern, and Behind the Headlines on Sunday, also at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern. So thanks again, everybody, and we will see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye, everyone.